Matthew chapter 25 is where we find ourselves this morning. So I'd ask that you would take out your Bible or your iPad or your Kindle or your phone or your device, whatever it is that you use this morning to study God's Word. We're not going to read the entirety of the chapter. We will pick up uh, around verse 31 here in just a moment, and we will read uh, verses 31 down through uh, 46. I'm just going to make reference to the first 30 verses in the opening remarks. So Matthew 25 contains the final three parables of Jesus' teaching ministry. Now, if you have been with us and you've been reading through the Bible with us so far, we are now 36 weeks uh, into our reading. We have read a lot of parables. This is one of Jesus' preferred methods of speaking and teaching. These are the final three parables that Jesus will tell in his ministry. Jesus is now 48 hours away from his crucifixion. These are the final days, and these are some of his final words. We are now, this coming week, as you begin to, to read, uh, you will, you, we will begin with Palm Sunday. So we are now entering into the final seven days of, of the life of Christ, the, the seven days leading up to the crucifixion. We would do well this morning to heed the final words of a dying man. Those who know that death is imminent only speak what they want remembered. And so I want you to take a look uh, for a moment up on the screen, because I want to read to you some of the final words of a human man who died just a few years ago. And I want us to use this as a way to think of if someone as frail and as sinful and as far as we know, even though the word God is used in this uh, statement, was pretty much a, 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 an unbeliever and a godless individual. If someone can write such powerful words and words that should be heeded, how much more do you and I need to pay even closer attention to the words of Christ this morning? This man writes, I've come to the pinnacle of success in business. In the eyes of others, my life has been the symbol of success. However, apart from work, I have little joy. Finally, my wealth is simply a fact to which I am accustomed. As a matter of fact, these are the final words of this man. He, he wrote these words down uh, just uh, less than a day before he passed away. At this time, lying on the hospital bed and remembering all my life, I realize that all the accolades and riches of which I once was so proud have become insignificant with my imminent death. In the dark, when I look at the green lights of the equipment for artificial respiration and feel the buzz of their mechanical sounds, I can feel the breath of, I can feel the breath of my approaching death looming over me. Only now do I understand that once you accumulate enough money for the rest of your life, you have to pursue objectives that are not related to wealth. It should be something more important. For example, stories of love, art, dreams of my childhood. 
No, stop pursuing wealth. It can only make a person into a twisted being just like me. God God has made us one way. We can feel the love in the heart of each of us and not illusions built by fame or money like I made in my life. I cannot take them with me. I can only take with me the memories that were strengthened by love. This is, the tr- this is the true wealth that will follow you, will accompany you. He will give strength and light to go ahead. Love can travel thousands of miles, and so life has no limits. Move to where you want to go. Strive to reach the goals you want to achieve. Everything is in your heart and in your hands. What, what is the world's most expensive bed? The hospital bed. You, if you have money, you can hire someone to drive your car, but you cannot hire someone to take your illness that is killing you. Material things can be lost. Material things lost can be found. But one thing you can never find when you lose life. Whatever stage of life, whatever stage of life where we are now, at the end we will have to face the day When the curtain falls, please treasure your family, love your spouse, love your friends, treat everyone well, and stay friendly with your neighbors. Life cannot be bought. Steve Jobs. The man that invented what most of you carry in your pocket this morning, or you use at work, one of the most influential people in our world died a very wealthy man, but yet very poor. This morning, Jesus leaves with us some of his final words. Steve Jobs wrote those words. Why? Because He did not want someone else to follow in the same shoes or to follow the same path that he walked. It was his desire in writing those words that those words might help someone avoid his fate. And this morning, Jesus has left for us. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you will find that all of Matthew 25 is written in red. These are Jesus' words, his final words, as he is looking ahead, knowing that in just seven, just really in five days, he will die. His life is coming to an end. And these are the words that he leaves us with. So may we heed them this morning. As I said, there are three parables in chapter 25. And the point of these three parables is readiness to meet the judge of the universe. Each one of each of the three builds on the one before. The first parable, which we will not read, but uh, you will read this upcoming week, is a parable about ten maidens who were supposed to be a part of a big marriage party. But they don't know when they're going to get picked up. The groom who is the head of the marriage party, just tells them to make sure that they are ready. Five of them are wise. 
Jesus says. So they pack their bags and keep their lamps filled with oil so that whenever he comes, they will be ready to go. Then there are five who are foolish. They think, you know, he probably won't come tonight. So I think, well, I'll binge watch my favorite Netflix show. So they sat at home, unprepared, and guess what? Sure enough, that night, the bridegroom comes. He took the ones that were packed and ready and left those who weren't, and they, were, and they completely missed the party. The point is of this first parable is that Jesus is coming back, and he wants us to be ready. But here's the question. What does that look like? What does it look like to be ready for the coming of Christ? Well, see parable two. The second parable explains how to be ready or what ready looks like. It's about a master who went on a trip and he left various amounts of money with three of his servants. To the one he gave five talents. To the other he gave, what, three talents. And to the third he gave one talent. Now, a talent is not a gift. It's not like being able to play an instrument or play a sport or anything like that. A talent in that day, now listen to this, was a, current, a, a, a value of money. And do you know how much a talent was worth? $15,000. So to one guy, he gave $75,000. To another guy, he gave $45,000. And to the third guy, he gave $15,000. Well, the first two of them do what? They invest the money and they get a return. But the third, the third man or person was scared he'd lose it in the market. And so he buried it and waited for the master to come back. When the master returned, he rewarded the two that had invested in their, their talents. He multiplied their talents. But the one who held on to his and buried it. When Jesus came back, he went and dug the talent up and gave it to Jesus. And he said, look, I still have everything that you gave me. And if you'll read this parable, or if you're familiar with it, Jesus says some words that are astounding. He calls the man who buried his talent wicked. This parable shows us what it looks like to be ready. And here's what it means when Jesus says we need to be like the five uh, bridesmaids who were ready for the wedding. Or excuse me, the five, uh, the five maidens who were ready. What that looks like is that it means that you and I are to leverage whatever God has given us for his kingdom. What does it look like to be ready? That means to be ready is, is that we are daily leveraging our lives for what, uh, using whatever God has given us for his kingdom. He has given you a certain amount of time. He has given you a certain amount of talents. He has given you a certain amount of treasure. And he is going to hold every one of us responsible for how we use them. What does it look like to leverage your life for God's kingdom? I'm glad you asked. And that is the purpose of the third parable. So what does it look like to wait? Well, we have a parable. 
It look, what does it look like to wait? Leverage your life. Let, leverage everything that God has given you for his kingdom. What does it look like to leverage everything for God's kingdom? See parable three. And this is where we'll spend our time this morning. In this parable, Jesus gets at the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Listen, here's the great thing about this, this trilogy of parables. If, if, you, if, if somebody asks you, hey, give me a chapter in the Bible that I could go and read to see what it looks like to be a Christian, there are many chapters in the Bible that you could uh, give to those people. But I'm, I, 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 this morning, I don't think that there is a better chapter in the Bible that you and I could give to someone or, or commission someone to read if they wanted to identify whether they were truly a believer of Jesus or not. Let me, ask you, let me ask you to consider how you define the essence of being a Christian. What determines whether you're really in or whether you're out? I've told you that for many Christians, it seems like Christianity means not much more than believing the right things and obeying a few moral laws. But is that really it? it I mean, is just being able to answer a series of theological questions, is that all that's required in order to call yourself a Christian? Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. And in this book, Crazy Love, Chan makes this statement. Just to read the Bible, attend church, and avoid big sins? Is this really the passionate, wholehearted life of discipleship Jesus was calling us to? This third parable explains how Jesus defines a Christian. It is the culmination of the other two parables showing us what it looks like to live with your lamp trimmed, your bag packed, and what it looks like to invest your talents in a way that pleases the master. So let's take a look at these verses, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of His angels with Him, then He will sit on the glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on his left, the king, will, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, bro least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, 
As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So who is Jesus talking about here? Some want to equate these people with, uh, with all the poor everywhere. And certainly God wants us to care for the poor, which I'll show you in a minute. But specifically here in this parable, he is talking about poor Christians. So that phrase, the least of these, is talking about Christians who are in these perils. These brothers and sisters of mine. Whenever Jesus uses that language of family in Matthew, he is always talking about followers of his. Furthermore, the term least of these is a common one in Matthew. And Jesus, also, and Jesus also always uses that to refer to his disciples. So it's pretty clear he's talking specifically about Christians who are suffering. Take a minute to let that sink in about what Jesus is saying. When you do kindness to one of Jesus' brothers in need, Jesus considers it as you doing it to him. Doing something for one of God's kids is like doing it to him. When you ignore a follower of Jesus in need or persecute a follower of Jesus, Jesus takes that personally. Do you remember on the road to Damascus when Jesus knocked uh, uh, Paul or Saul at that time off of his horse? What was Paul doing? I mean, what was Saul doing? He was persecuting believers. He was actually on his, on his way to persecute more Christians. And when God knocked him off his horse, what did he say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? No, that's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why? Because in persecuting or, or uh, persecuting one of God's children, you are persecuting God himself. When you do something to one of God's children, whether it be good or bad, you are doing it to God himself. So there's three important questions this parable answers. Question number one, who will go to heaven? Is there, is there any more important question in this life? I believe not. Who will go to heaven? This parable is more than a little alarming to me because it shows us that not everyone who considers themselves a Christian will go to heaven. The sheep and the goats in this parable all seem to recognize that Jesus is Lord. No one here is like, who are you? All of the maidens in the first parable considered themselves to be friends of the bridegroom. And all of the servants in the parable of the talents considered themselves to be employed by the master. This judgment does not separate Christians from the rest of the world. It separates genuine Christians from imposters. i tell you something that's interesting about sheep and goats. And uh, not that I'm an expert on sheep and goats. I'm just going to tell you something that I saw one day. If, if you need sheep and goat expertise, see Matthew. He can tell you a whole lot more about sheep and goats than I can. But I, when you turn off the main road... Uh, to, to go to my house, 
there is a little pasture on the right-hand side of the road, right before you get to the railroad tracks. And I, and I noticed that this guy from time to time would put sheep in, um, uh, in that pasture to graze. And one day as I was trapped by the train, along with, and what I mean by trapped is, I was about the eighth car in line and I couldn't get out because I had people behind me, I had people in front of me, I was boxed in and I had to wait for the train to move instead of going around the train. But what I noticed was I, I got to looking into the field. And what I noticed in the field that I had not seen before is I had always thought that the field was populated with sheep. But when I looked a little closer, guess what I saw? Goats mixed in with the sheep. You see, at first glance, after days of passing by the pasture that I thought was filled with sheep, at closer examination, I realized that, you know what? Those goats look a lot like sheep. They kind of all blend in together. And if you're not paying close attention, you won't know that, hey, guess what? That, that, that pasture is just not sheep only. It's sheep and goats. And listen, here's what Jesus is letting us know. That, that at first glance, you can look out and you can do like I had done for days and pass by and pass by and pass by and not realize that what you were looking at was not just a pasture full of sheep, but a pasture mixed with sheep and goat. And listen, there are a lot of people that look like sheep that if only upon closer examination would you realize that they were really goats. But listen, Jesus doesn't ask us to go around trying to separate the sheep and goat. Now, he tells us to preach and, and, and to preach sermons uh, from this parable, warning Christians, make sure you're a sheep and not a goat. But listen, he's saying that the similarities are so similar that he will wait until the day of judgment and he will really reveal who is a sheep and who is a goat. But I want to tell you what, this morning... All of us under the sound of our voice or, or any who might listen to this later on, this recording later on, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, and we will our, ask ourselves at the end of this sermon is, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Listen, it may be hard to distinguish which is which by our eye, but I want to tell you something. Our heart knows our true condition. Make no mistake about it. We're not dealing here with simply the loss of reward. We're talking about heaven and hell. Jesus ends the parable of the maidens by saying what? Verse 10 and 12, and while they were going to buy the bridegroom, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast and those feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came along saying, Lord, 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 open up to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Or how about in uh, verses 26 through 30? Of the second parable. But the master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, 
You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my, what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast, watch this, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then finally in the last parable, verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Church, I don't think it can get any clearer this morning. We're talking about heaven and hell here. There are a lot of people in the church who think that they are Christians that are tragically mistaken. You say, well, what exactly is the difference between those who go to heaven and hell? Evidently, it had, listen, it had little to do with what they believed or how much they went to church. Those things are not cited here. The only difference in the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do whether or not they were actively, tangibly engaged in the mission of God and specifically generous towards the poor, particularly poor believers. Apart from that, all other religious activity is useless. Isaiah 56 and 58, God said of Israel, you're fasting, you're doing all your religious exercises, those things mean nothing if you ignore the poor. It means nothing. You claim to know me, but you, pour, but you pour a deaf ear to the poor. Therefore, you don't know me. Let's not forget that uh, though Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with rampant immorality, that the Bible ultimately says that God had had enough of them, not because of their immorality, Though he was sickened by their immorality, the Bible tells us and teaches us plainly is that God ultimately brought, uh, 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 obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah off the map because it said they were rich in resources and yet they turned a deaf ear to the cries of those in need around them. He turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a salt lick because they fail to meet the needs of the cries of those in need around them. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Might be a reason some prayer life, some people's prayer life not going that great right now. Could be the reason why you're sending up a lot of prayers and not being, not answered and are not being answered because you're turning a deaf ear to the cries of others. He is saying you pray a lot, but when you shut your ears to the poor, your prayers don't matter. You've got nothing, you've got nothing before God. You say, well, doesn't the Bible teach us that salvation is by faith alone? Through grace alone? Yes. So isn't what you're saying a contradiction? No. What it's showing you is that real faith, the kind of faith that saves you, is more than just an intellectual ascent and church attendance. Saving faith transforms you from the inside out. You demonstrate that by engaging in the mission of God. So write that statement down. 
There can never be truer words spoken to you than, than this statement. And it, I didn't make it up. It comes from Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What, do you, what is he saying? He is saying exactly what James, the half-brother Jesus, said. So faith by itself, if it does not work, it is dead. So we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Intellectual beliefs without change of heart that results in good works is like a body with no life in it. Listen, there are a lot of people that say that they are believers in Jesus and they're not. Here's the difference. There are a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. The best example, and I've used this before, if I took a chair and put it up here, okay, and you looked at that chair, and you could tell me everything about the chair, the manufacturer of the chair, the type of steel that was used in the chair, where the, the, where the ore was mined uh, out of the ground to make the steel that the chair is built out of. Maybe you know the, the particular uh, plant that smelted the steel in order to make the chair. And you knew everything about it. You, you, you knew how much uh, 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 weight the chair could hold. You knew about the durability of the chair. You knew about the trustworthiness of the chair. And you could tell me everything I ever wanted to know about the chair. But yet you will not sit in the chair. That is the difference between somebody that knows and somebody that believes. Do you remember what I, how, the, the illustration that I've tried to use to teach us what, it, what faith looks like? Faith is having, yes, some intellectual knowledge. Why? Because we, we have to believe with our mind. But what faith really is, is that we take what we know and we put it into action. So I know what I know about the chair. And because what I know about the chair engages me to sit in the chair. The sitting in the chair is actually the belief or the faith in the chair. It's not blind faith. It's not like I just sit in the chair without knowing anything about it. It's faith rooted in fact. So there's a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but listen, they have never rested their entire life on Jesus. And you may say, well, what does that look like? And I'm glad you asked because that's the end of my sermon here this morning. The sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to loving God, the people of God, and the mission of God. You see, there are two ways to tell what you believe. What your, what your lips say and what your life says. One of these two is more reliable than the other. Anybody want to guess which one's more reliable? Your lips or your life. One of them never lies. What your life says is always, is always a better indicator of what you actually believe than what your lips say. The question is not whether your lips say you believe. The question is, does your life say you believe? Which leads to question two. Is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? 
Is it possible this morning to be a lukewarm Christian? The answer to that is yes and no. Let me, let me explain that to you. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches, believe the message, but are not really sold out to Jesus and are not meaningfully engaged in the mission of Jesus. Do you keep hearing this phrase that I'm saying over and over, engaged in the mission of Jesus? Listen, what was Jesus' final commission to his disciples? To those who follow me, all authority and power have been given to me. Now I give to you, go and make disciples. The one true identity of those who are truly Sheep and not goats are people that go and make disciples. People that are engaged in the mission of God. Not people that are engaged in a seat in a church. Or enrolled on a church roll. Jesus is describing the same kind of Christians in these three parables. They consider themselves Christians, but they don't live in a way that anticipates the master's return. Like the maidens, they consider themselves Christians, but they don't live as though they are, uh, they are going to give an account to him. They are only thinking about how to make things comfortable in the present moment and not how to be faithful in their assignment to God. The, the wicked servant, they have, uh, they have never considered why God gave them all the talent and the time and the treasure that they have. And how to invest it for God's kingdom. Like the goats, they are not meaningfully engaged in the mission of God or leveraging their resources to care for the poor or, ex- or extend the mission of God. What bothered me this week, okay, I want you to, I want you to think about this, this for a moment. I want you to be bothered by this as much as I'm bothered by this. What bothered me most this week about this parable is that Jesus gives no middle ground. How many of y'all like gray areas? Some of us do. And some of us, we like black and white. This is a very black and white issue. Jesus is not like, okay, there's sheep, there's goats, and then there's something in between. He's like, no, you're either a sheep or you're a goat. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either committed to the mission, all in for Jesus, using your resources for the kingdom, or you're not. You're either... You are either praised for your commitment and welcomed into the kingdom or condemned and left out. There's no middle ground. And so this puts lukewarm Christianity in a very precarious situation. I've told you before that one of the things in these parables that has always gripped me is how, the, uh, is how in the parable of the master who left his servants with differing amounts of talents, he called the one who did not invest the talent but buried it. He called him wicked. But listen, what, what wickedness had he done? There are two ways to be wicked in this world. There's a way to be wicked by doing what is obviously wicked, and then there is a way to be wicked in doing something that obviously seems to be okay. Most of us would not look at somebody else and say, well, he's a wicked man because he will not or she will not 
help anybody that's in need. It's their money. They worked hard for it. They went out there and, 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 and busted it and made it, and they've invested right, and they've been, uh, uh, they, haven't, they haven't squandered and been frivolous with their money. It's theirs to do with what they want. And listen, that is the kind of language that is goat language, not sheep language. That's what Jesus would call wicked. It shows you that there is more than one way to be wicked. So let me ask you a question. Are you a lukewarm Christian? Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, back to that book again, gives us the profile of the lukewarm Christian, which, which really he took, he doesn't say this, but I mean, he could have took it straight out of Matthew 25. So let's look at these real quick as we, as we wind down this morning. So number one, Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. What does that mean, preacher? That means all they want to do is go to heaven. They don't care anything about fighting or hating or battling or putting to death sin in their life. They just simply want the penalty of sin to be dealt with. They don't care anything about dealing with the present. I mean, with the the ongoing battle of sin. Lukewarm people love God, but not with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They don't love God really enough to be committed to avoiding sin. He's, just, he's a useful fire escape they employ to get out of hell, not a God they worship. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not do radical things themselves. And here's another part about lukewarm. It's not going to be on the screen. But lukewarm people call radical what God calls normal. Lukewarm people equate their partiality, their, their excuse me, lukewarm people equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. Jesus didn't call us to sanitation. He called us to discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you live a sanitized life, but that you get your hands dirty by bringing help, healing, and salvation like he did. David Platt, who wrote a book called Radical, says, in the church today, we tend to disinfect people rather than disciple them. We define holiness by what Christians avoid rather than by being like Jesus. Our approach to holiness is not becoming more like Christ. It's about staying away from certain stuff. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. They do not want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues of religion. That's because they just don't believe the message that strongly. Spurgeon said, you're either a missionary or you're an imposter. Lukewarm people think about their life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. Notice what I said, sacrificial way. 
Sacrificial means in a way that hurts. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. <laughs> they, are, they are like the servant who sits on his talent in fear rather than investing it in faith. They are all about security and not about risk for the kingdom. Theirs is risk involved. There's risk involved in God's kingdom. If you're not in a place where you feel desperate for the Spirit of God, then there's no way you are on the front lines of the mission. When we are on the front lines, we desperately feel our need for God's help. Last one, lukewarm people give God the leftovers, not their first best. The prophet Malachi talked about a bunch of priests who gave, who gave to God but kept the best spotless animals for themselves and passed on to God the less desirable animals. Malachi 1.8 says this, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? These sacrifices were not merely inadequate, from God's point of view, but they were evil. If your giving does not represent your first and best, it's evil to God. You know what God is saying? If all you're going to give me is your lunch money, just keep it. If all you're going to give me is your leftovers, then just keep it. Don't give it. Hold on to it. God is saying, I deserve first, and I deserve best. Stop complaining about your complacency and your apathy. Quit talking about a busy schedule or bills that need to be paid or I just forgot. Call it what it is. Listen, I love you this morning and I'm going to say to you what exactly I say to, would say to myself is when you get into excuse mode and you keep making excuses for your time and your talent and your treasure, listen, just stop the insanity of excuses and call it what it is. I am being evil. There are no excuses, only evil. Tweet that. Put that on Facebook. There's no excuses, only evil. And I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to myself. I don't want to give the wrong idea. We all struggle with commitment. Seasons where we falter. The question for us this morning is going to be on the screen. This is the question for this morning. Are you engaged in the mission of God? Is your Christianity more than a belief thing? More than a morality thing? Are you engaged personally in the mission of God with your time, your treasures, and your talents? And don't hide behind this morning. Well, I'm just trying to figure out exactly what God wants me to do. How many of y'all watched the ball game yesterday? Did, did, did you pray about that? Did God call you to watch the ball game? How many of y'all took, took a bath last night or this morning? Did you pray about that? Did God call you to take a bath? Doris loves it when people take a bath. 
because she don't like nasty people. She don't like germs. What's your point? The point of it is, is that some of us are sitting around waiting on God to tell us to do something when he's already told us a whole host of stuff to do that requires no brain power or thinking at all. It just requires us to get up and go do it. And how about giving? It's time that we quit saying, I can't afford to give. Do you know this morning that if your household income totals $48,000 a year, that's $4,000 a month, if that's your total gross income, you make, this blows my mind, you make 100 times more than the average person on this planet. Not one times more, not 10 times more, not 50 times more, 100 times more. If you make $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year, then you make 50 times more than the average person on this planet. Which is more messed up? That we have so much compared to everyone else or that we don't think that we're rich? How many of us flippantly call ourselves broke or poor? We need our... Uh, we're neither of those things. We are rich, filthy rich. How can we have so much but be doing so little to relieve the suffering of others in this world, in particular those who are followers of Jesus? I promise I'm ending. There's a debate going on in Christianity right now about some of the... about Christianity in America 200 years ago. And I have this struggle as well. And and what is that struggle? Is that in our great country that was founded on Christian morals and virtue and founded on Scripture itself, and people came here, why? Because they wanted the freedom to be able to worship God. And how could a country devoted to such ever find itself trading human beings and enslaving human beings? How can a nation that calls themselves Christian practice such horrors. I don't have an answer to that. But I want to I bring that up just to propose this to you this morning. In 200 years if 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 subsequent generations are still waiting the return of Christ in 200 years, will in 200 years will our great, 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 great grandchildren who are following Christ, hopefully, and who are gathered in churches, look back to, to, the, to the early part of this 21st century and will they look at, at Christianity and the abundance of wealth that God had provided for American Christians and will they look back at us and will they say to us, 
How in the world could they be so rich and, so, and yet so greedy? So I'll end with this quote just to show you this is not a new, a new issue. This comes from a man named Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor of about 150 years ago in Scotland. He said this to his congregation about this passage, Matthew 25. He says, I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know know what Christ will say to you in that great day. I fear that there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart, an old heart. Would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you now, you will be beggars throughout eternity. The sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to God, the people of God, and the mission of God. There's only two ways to tell whether you're a true believer this morning. What your lips say and what your life say. But one day when you stand before God, you're not going to get to say anything with your lips. I, you know something that just jumped out at me? The only people who speak on, at the bar of judgment... Now think about this. Matthew 7... There's people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now there are people here standing before God. And he says, depart from me. The only people who try to justify themselves with their lips are goats. Sheep are justified by their life. I'm not saying that they are saved by their life, but their life proves that they have been saved. So what do, we, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, here's how we go from here this morning. We take communion every week. This is offered every single week to us. As what? As a remembrance of what Christ done, has done for us. Did Christ sacrifice for you? Did Christ sacrifice for me? Did he put any stipulations on his sacrifice? Did he withhold anything, any good thing from us? Were, were we his friend when he sacrificed for us? Were we doing our best when he sacrificed for us? Were we being loving when he sacrificed for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ sacrificed himself for us. God who had everything gave it all up. Why? To win sinners such as us. And what does he call us to do? He calls us to follow in his steps. He calls us to bear his name. He calls us to do what he has done. And yes, it might even cost us laying down our lives. But for the vast majority of us sitting in this room this morning, we will not die for the cause of Christ, but we are called to sacrifice for the cause of Christ.
We are called to sacrifice so that we can imitate our Savior to a lost and dying world. And this morning, the way we're going to close our service is actually, I'm just going to have Jason, if you will, in a moment, I'll cue you up. Just go back to the, the, to the uh, prayer slide. And we're just going to let that music play. And I'm going to ask you to enter into a moment of contemplation and prayer. And I want you to seriously do some, I mean, do some heart work before the Lord this morning. And ask yourself that question. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Now listen, we can all act goat-like at times. We can all fall into periods of lukewarmness. We, we, can, we can have those seasons. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, is living like a goat and living like a lukewarm Christian, is that your life? If it is, then you're not a sheep. But if you are a genuine and true sheep this morning, but you find yourself coming into this place this morning, and you are living more like a lukewarm Christian than one that is hot and cold, one that is being used for by the Lord. If you come in here and there's more, and you're being more goaty right now than you are sheepy, then I'm going to ask you to do this before you come, because we're not going to hand you communion this morning. I'm going to ask you once you are ready, if you get yourself ready to take communion this morning, that you simply come down, you pick up the bread, you take it, you pick up the juice, you take it, and then you put the cup right back here, and then you go back to your seat. But I'm going to caution you this morning. Unless you can walk out that door this morning with full confidence that you're a sheep, do not partake in this. If you can't walk out as a sheep of God this morning, having dealt with your own sin and having dealt with the lukewarmness that, that you often find yourself falling into in your life, then don't come and take of this. It would not break my heart if every person in here walked out of here and did not come to this table. I would rather have people that would walk in truth than walk in a lie. But listen, here's what, I'm gonna, here's what I know. I know that if we will be true and honest before the Lord this morning and we partake of this table and we walk out that door, then we will have people that are walking out this door committed not committed to doing what they know they should do and seeking and asking God's help in order to do it. Why? Because you want to live like the sheep that you are. Or you are now living like the sheep that you weren't before you came in here because you came in a goat. Go ahead, if you will, find that slide. I'm going to ask you to bow.